Well, we're continuing, as Matt said, our, our, our sermon series, Jesus in Suburbia. And uh, in order to make sense of the reading that we've had today, I wanted to uh, give you a quick overview of the Bible that I use, uh, which has these pictures. Now, if you're here a couple of weeks ago, you would have seen my uh, Bible reading overview uh, that has the Old Testament summed up in these pictures and the New Testament like this. Uh, at, at its heart, today's sermon is really addressing the question of why have we got two Testaments still? Why have we got two? And uh, in order to think about that, we're going to go to these last two pictures. Uh, the picture of Jesus returning uh, as the judge, and then the picture of the new creation. And I want us to think forward to the world that God is bringing about, the one where Jesus is ruling as king in, in every heart. And it's an amazing world. Uh, a world, I want you to imagine, where people deal rightly with one another. A, a world without regret. A world without anger and confrontation. A world without broken relationships. A world where people will say what they mean and mean what they say perfectly. A world where there won't be revenge because there won't be wrong. A world where right relationships prosper, a world where we eat not just with our friends, but we feast with people who are completely different from us because we find unity and hope and love in Jesus. The world to come is a place that's centred on Jesus. The centre of it is Jesus. The thing that makes sense of everything else is Jesus at the centre. That's where we're headed. That's what God's big plan for the universe is, to lift Jesus up and make him most important and let having him as king change everything else. Well, if that's the vision of where we're trying to get to, how would you try to get there? Uh, I did idly say, imagine you were God, but that's helping you to be sinful, isn't it? That's our problem, isn't it, when we sin? Uh, imagine you were God. Well, okay, I'm God, I'm in charge of my life, what would I do? But, but, but hypothetically, if you were God, what would you have done? How would you bring about, how would I point humanity that's going the wrong way towards this great ideal that I have? How would you do it? How would you do it? Well, here's, uh, here's this little part from Leviticus. Now, I don't know if you've read much of Leviticus. It's a bit of a strange book, isn't it, at some level? It's got lots of laws in it. Uh, and uh, it was read for us by, by Ashley before, uh, Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, how did the Lord go about giving us a start? Well, the Lord said to Moses, it says in Leviticus 19, 1 to 3, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of us must respect your mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Well, we, we immediately go to laws and Sabbaths, don't we? That, that's where we, we start thinking, okay, so what do I have to do? I have to think about Sunday and make sure I do that right. But we, we missed the bit that was just before it there. Ha, have a look up there. Be what? It's tiny print, isn't it? Be, be if you can't read it. Be holy is what it says. Be holy because I am holy. That, that's right at the heart there. God's saying, I want for you to be like me, to be living pure, right lives. Be holy because I'm holy. Now, let me tell you some laws, he says. Uh, I wonder if, um, if any of you have seen a sign like this one. Have you ever seen a sign like this one? There isn't, there isn't one out the front here, which I'm very thankful for. 
In fact, I'm thankful that our building doesn't have really fences anywhere. There's a st- sense in which people can walk all over the place here. But, but where you have places like this, keep off the grass. I remember I was uh, in the quadrangle at Sydney University in the middle of all those sandstone buildings there. And there's, you know, metal spikes in and beautiful rope like this. And behind the rope are people lying down all over the grass, <laughs> reading their books and doing whatever. There's something in us when we see that sign that we think, do, do, you, know, do, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like wet paint, don't touch. What's our first thought? Is it wet? I mean, what? So, so we, we, I think in us, we have an innately kind of rule-breaking kind of desire. We just kind of want to cross the line. There's the line. Ooh, 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 yep, I can get this close. Am I over it yet? No, that would be over it. I wouldn't do that, of course, but... Oh, I felt... Anyway, you get the idea. Uh, keep off the grass. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, my, my little boy Isaac's trying to learn to read at the moment, which is very exciting. Uh, as, a, as a look around, I kind of try and think, what, what could I point him to that he could read? Are there any words that he could see? Well, once you start driving around, here are the words that you see. Uh, no standing at any time. Park. Well, keep off the grass. Uh, don't overtake turning vehicle. No U-turns. Uh, this is a 40k zone between these hours and this hour. As a bunch of Australians, we are totally sold out to making rules about what you can't do. Have you noticed this? Have you ever seen one of those signs that goes up in a park these days about what you can't do in a park? Some of you have. I mean, you'd have to spend time creatively thinking of these. I would never have thought to do half of them in a park. But there they are, 27 circles with lines through them saying what you can't do in the park. It's an amazing mindset. And, And so what we end up doing is we end up being people who think about boundaries And more often than not, about crossing them and breaking them. God set up some boundaries for his people, Israel. He gave them a whole bunch of laws in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you know how many laws there are in the Old Testament. This is a wonderful piece of trivia. Okay, You'd say a lot, wouldn't you? That's what you'd say. I guess there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament. Well, from doing a little bit of research, I didn't count them, it must be said, but doing a little bit of research, I'm told that the number is... 613. So if you're a Jew and you've been told by God, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, here's how to live. Well, there's 613 things that I would like you to do to be holy like me. Does that sound easy? (laughs) Sounds tremendously difficult, doesn't it? Even just to read through all 613, let alone know them, let alone fulfill them. An extraordinary concern. Why so many, we could ask? Why so many? Because the living God is so concerned about how we live. He's concerned about how we use the fibers in the clothing that we have, how we make sure our wounds are clean, how we wash our hands, how we have sexual relations, how we deal with our money. Every part of the life of an Israelite was governed in some way by God's call to holiness. So what's Jesus done with the law? What what has Jesus done with the law? And it's an important question. Pick your Bibles up for a second. Most of you have got one handy. I want you to see if you can just do this physical thing with me. What I want you to do, see if you can find where Matthew starts in the Bible. Uh, If you've got one of these Bibles, it's about page 900 and, what is it, 960-something, 65. Uh, If it's the uh, big print Bible and someone's done it, you can do it. Uh, If it's on your iPad, it's on page one still. There you go. 
Uh, what I want you to do, have a look at it, hold it up, just physically feel it, have a look. Can you see how much the Old Testament is? Can you see how much that is? We're in a church that believes Jesus is Lord. Many of us would think, why bother with this Old Testament, yeah? What's this doing making my Bible so heavy? Yeah? Can't we just, can't we just get rid of it? What, what's it for, essentially, I think is the question. So we want to see, what has Jesus done with the law? How has he approached these 613 laws, all this history? What, what's he done? Well, I want to think for a second about how God sees the church. Uh, some of you were present for this. This picture was taken on the opening day of our church, January 20, 2013. Tiny little gathering, but it was very exciting on the day. Here was our opening day when the building was open. Fantastic. What can we see? We can see growth. Let's see what God sees. God sees something totally different. God sees people. But he sees through people. Not just the outward appearance that we get so caught up in. God sees through people and more than just seeing through them bones and it's not like an MRI. What, what I really want to say is what God sees is this. Yeah? A heart. He sees your hearts. He doesn't just see a collection of lovely, well-dressed people from Oran Park and surrounds. It's not what he sees. He sees you. He knows you by name. He sees your heart. He loves you and he's concerned for your holiness. What does he see? He sees your heart. Why does your heart matter so much? Well, your heart matters because it's a seed. It's the source of a seed. The seed might be a thought. It might be a feeling. It might be a desire. God is looking in there to this seed factory that is our hearts. And he's looking in there to see the seeds that we are sowing. Why? Because what is sown as a thought or a desire or a feeling leads to an action. That, that seed inevitably sows an action. And so God, rather than just looking at the big tree, is actually looking back to the source and he's going, I see the seed. I see the seed of what will be in your thoughts, in your feelings, in your desires. I see what will be in that seed. And so God has a totally different standard to me because I'm so often just looking at the outcome. I'm looking at trees in people's lives. I'm going, that is a big, bad, wrong thing. Or that's a beautiful, wonderful piece of service. And I see that. But God sees the seed from which it grew. Why does that matter? Well, have a listen to this. This is how Jesus approaches the law. We'll go, we'll go to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, it's on uh, page 969. It'll be great if you can have it open. We're going to be working through it. Matthew chapter 5 uh, and verses 17 to 18. So we could say, rightly, I think at some level, so Jesus, why do you keep the Old Testament about? Can't we just cut our Bibles in a third, cut, you know, cut, cut that useful third, get rid of the dead wood, joke, get rid of the dead wood and get on with it? Well, here's what Jesus says, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That, that's the Old Testament. Don't think I've come to get rid of that. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
What, what do we learn? Here's what we learn. Jesus is approaching the law. He's thinking about completion, not erasure. He's not there to get rid of it, but to fulfill it. Okay, he's there to fulfill it, but what does that mean? What does it mean for him to fulfill it? Well, this completion, this fulfilling is in two ways. In two ways. Jesus came to fulfill the sinless intent of the law. So why was the law given? The law was given, I am holy, be holy. Jesus came to say, it is possible. I will live the sinless life this law intended perfectly. So Jesus came to complete the law, to show this is what life lived under the law looks like. Secondly, he came to be the one it was looking forward to all along. The law was actually put in place for something else to happen. It was put in place to point to Jesus. Have a listen. Uh, uh, I've never been a high jumper. You'll be surprised to know. It's good. Some of you can see I'm not vertically gifted. Uh, I, I've never been a high jumper. Uh, and, and every time it gets from about, I don't know, about there where you can kind of almost step over it, I, I don't know what to do. The Frosby flop, is that right? What's the other one? The scissors, yeah, you kind of go that way. I, I don't know anything about it. Is anyone here good at high jump? Oh, wow, yeah, great, brilliant, fantastic. I'll get some lessons later. Uh, The point for me is there's a point at which I'm comfortable with the bar being raised and then all of a sudden what I find myself doing is is headbutting it, just running into it. I mean, you you just kind of give up and you end up just flopping into it and then you land on it and it hurts your side. There's a point at which the bar gets raised so high it just becomes inconvenient until it gets raised so high you just walk underneath it, yeah? Totally ignore it. I think the current world record, everyone in this building could walk under unaided without touching it. Extraordinary. But here's the thing. Jesus came to fulfill the sinless intent of the law. He went to say, it's, it's a bar. It's way too high for you, but it's not too high for me. He came to show us it is possible to live a sinless life. And this is what a, sinless, a truly sinless life would look like. Jesus came to fulfill the sinless intent of the law. Well, secondly... Uh, Jesus came to be the one that it pointed to all along. I'm not sure if you know this story. After Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, two people are walking uh, outside of Jerusalem and they're chatting with with each other when a person rocks up, unbeknownst to them. They don't know who it is. And uh, they start to talk about the fact that this person, Jesus, had died. And uh, they talked about, we're we're hoping maybe that he, we thought he might have been the Messiah. And then Jesus, who's walking with them, says this, He said to them, how foolish you are. Isn't Jesus loving and caring? How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. First point, this is the best Bible study that's ever been run. Jesus is taking it. He's saying the whole Old Testament... It's pointing to me. He's showing them as they walk along, this book, this book, I am the one it was looking forward to all along. It's me. I'm the fulfillment of this book. It's me. So that's how Jesus came to fulfill the law, to live a perfect life and to be the one it was looking forward to. 
Well, let's have a think how Jesus lifts the bar. How does Jesus take the law, those 613 laws, and raise them even higher? Because you'd think to yourself, gracious, I couldn't keep it beforehand. Why would he have to raise the bar? So what we're going to do to have a look at how Jesus lifts the bar is we're going to compare our Leviticus reading, part of the Old Testament law, with what Jesus says in the New Testament. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to jump backwards and forwards. Here's a bit of the Old Testament. Here's what Jesus does with it. Is that okay? You won't need to look up the Leviticus one, so just keep your hand in, in, in Matthew. But I want, you, I want you to see these bits. Here's part of it. Uh, in Leviticus 19, verses 5 to 7, it says this. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. So what's the plan? Well, you've got a meat sacrifice and you don't have refrigeration. How many days can you offer that and for it to be acceptable? Well, it's really important that you do it on the first day. Maybe we can get away with the second day, but if you get to the third day, not acceptable. You're right? Here's what Jesus says about acceptable offerings. We're in verse 21 of chapter 5. It says this. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So you're thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. How does this relate to fellowship offerings? Bear with me. Have a look at the next verse. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, here's the connection. If you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. It's really interesting. In the Old Testament, to be acceptable or unacceptable had to do with whether the meat would be off. And there used to be judgment for someone who was a murderer. Here's what Jesus says. If you're someone who says, fool, the seed that you're sowing in your heart is one of murder. The anger, the outburst, the word that no one else hears in your little aluminium and glass bubble in your car when someone pulls in front of you, that, Jesus says, that is deadly dangerous. You are sowing murder. And so what he says is, what will make your offering acceptable or unacceptable is actually the seed that you've sown in your heart. If you come before the living God and you've got a fresh piece of meat, but an unreconciled heart, you are hating in your heart, then he says, guess what? It's much better for you to leave the gift there, go home, make right with the person that you're at odds with and then come back and offer your gift. Then it will be acceptable. Can you see how that's a way higher standard? He's he's saying, just dumping meat in front of me isn't what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to understand it was a fellowship offering. God and man. You can't come and offer me a fellowship offering while you're hating your brother or sister. Extraordinary, isn't it? There's Jesus looking at the seed and saying, you can't mock me here. 
Go and be reconciled. And so the first challenge we have in suburbia is we, we love holding grudges, don't we? It's a matter of pride. You've wronged me and I will hold you to account. And so we stride in here with a list of wrongs carefully written out, knowing, of course, that we're right, and holding it against those. And what Jesus is saying is, be be careful. Don't come to offer acceptable praise to God if we're not right with him. Now, that's heavy, isn't it? I mean... This isn't a sermon for someone else, is it? It, It's for me and and it's for you. Reconcile and then come. Well, fortunately, Jesus is only getting warmed up, so so let's keep going. Here's what it says in Leviticus. So we're going time travel back to the Old Testament. Here's what it says in Leviticus. It says, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Well, well, that would, (laughs) we'd be done already, wouldn't we? don't, Don't steal, don't lie, do not deceive one another. Well, we're three for three, aren't we? No, no, I won't speak for you. Regrettably, there will be times when I've done all three of those. This isn't at arm's length. The law, as it stands, has already got me. What what, what would Jesus do? Remember, Jesus is looking at seeds. Interestingly enough, in verse 27, he says this, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. If it's someone else's husband or wife, you're stealing. If it's carried out, it will involve deceit and it will involve lying, won't it? But I tell you, Jesus says, we were already in trouble. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We're wiped out, aren't we? I'm I'm wiped out. One-armed, one-eyed, no-eyed, no-armed. What's the point? it's so easy to kind of just fix our brains on because it's a, it's a relieving thought. Well, I don't think that I see many Christians cutting their arms off. That's not Jesus' point. He's saying if you had to take that action and it would stop you, it would be worth it. It'd be worth it. You'd get to heaven and being a one-armed, one-eyed person in heaven is eminently better than being fully bodied in hell. That's the equation. So whatever you have to do, do it. Here's the next one. Cut it off and make it right. Cut it off and make it right. What what do we need to cut off? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Jesus is still on a tear. Here he goes. This is from Leviticus. We're back in Leviticus 19. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Well, this is maybe for some of us who've been Christians for a while, we're able to go, finally, I'm in the clear. 
I've, I've learned not to misuse the name of the Lord. I think I've told you guys that uh, uh, I, I used to swear a lot, uh, which I know doesn't make any sense to you, but uh, I used to swear a lot. And, and the way we got out of it, a couple of Christian friends and I decided we were going to stop swearing. And so we decided together, whoever swore, the other two guys could slug them. And it was just a simple matter of training to know that this word equals pain. And we got out of it quickly enough. So let's say we're not swearing falsely. That's good. What does Jesus say here? Have a look with me at verse 33. Incidentally, he he goes past uh, divorce here. There's not enough time for me to deal well with divorce today. Uh, I have dealt with divorce um, in our Big Questions series. If you look up on our website, you'll hear a sermon on that where I tried to work through that really carefully. But this section here on oaths follows that, which I think is very instructive. Have a look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Well, that sounds like a high standard. If you swear by God that you're going to do it, you better follow it through. But he goes, Jesus, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Can I retire and stop preaching now? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Everyone loves that, don't we? And everyone will love someone they know who's really a person of their word, won't they? You love them. I love that I can say that and I can trust that they will do what they say. <laughs> I talk, I've talked already about Facebook invitations where you could say yes, no and maybe. Now, now they've just changed it. It's not yes, no and maybe, it's yes, no and interested. So I can say, I'm interested, but I'm making no commitment whatsoever. Our yeses, our nos have not even become maybes now. They've become, I'm mildly interested, I'll get back to you if and when I choose. Jesus versus suburbia, what's he saying here? Say your word, keep your word. Be people of your word. It doesn't require an oath to the living God or by heaven or by whatever it is. Be a person of your word. Good? challenging enough, I, I would suggest. Jesus continues. Well, I'll go, I'll go back to Leviticus. Uh, this is going to punch again, I think. Do not seek revenge, it says in Leviticus, or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, don't bear a grudge at all, but love your neighbour as yourself. The law sounds impressive. Do not take revenge, it says. Here's what Jesus says. Have a look at verse 38. We should, we should read it because it, it's, uh, it's impressively high standard that, that he has. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus, not just am I not to take revenge, you're actually telling me to offer my other cheek. Why is that? Uh, we did a little, a little slap equation in, in, my, uh, in my life group the other day. 
Uh, here's, here's the person, an, another person. Okay? They slap me. I'll go this side first because the microphone's on the other one, right? They slap me. Now, what does the law say I can do? I can slap them back. No worries. Okay, so we're even, right? Slap me, I slap you. How many slaps have there been? Good, some of you quick people are on board with that. That's good, good. How many, how many have there been? Two. Okay, all right. Here's the thing, though. When I go back like that, what generally happens? We just say, oh, thanks very much, we're all done. Shake hands, walk away. Is that what happens? What happens next? All this comes on, doesn't it? So although it's sort of designed to even and stop retaliation, here's what happens. It just goes to escalation, doesn't it? Here's what Jesus says. Keep the, keep the slap count the same. Someone slaps you, what should you do? Turn the other cheek and how many slaps have there been? What's the chance for escalation from there? Do you see how beautiful this is? He's amazing, isn't he? The the law says don't take revenge. Jesus says exhaust the offence. I want to make a special note here on domestic violence. This is in no way, in no way, a justification for people receiving physical abuse in their home. We as a church utterly abhor that. What this is, is a method of showing us how to exhaust the injury, bear the weight of wrong ourselves. It's not an encouragement to physical abuse. I want to be very clear on that. What I would ask us to do as a church, though, is to be willing to suffer wrong for peace. Suffer wrong for peace. Don't get even. Forgo getting even for the more beautiful thing of peace. There's one more to go. In Leviticus, it says this, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Well, we're getting close, aren't we? Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Now, there's some people who love that one, don't they? Bring it on. I love speaking the truth. I I think people who smile and get really excited about how good they are at speaking the truth are probably just reveling in their sinfulness, but that's by the by. That's what the law said. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus says something extraordinary here in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, you ready for this? Incidentally, did you know it doesn't say love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Anywhere. That's just something they'd made up. It doesn't say love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's what Jesus says though. He says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's the reason. Why do that? That sounds ridiculous. Why would I pray for those who persecute me? You want to see what the beautiful reward is? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's a motivation. He causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. Here's the killer. You ready to be, as if we haven't already been knocked out today. You ready for this? Listen to verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? 
Does not even ISIS do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brothers and sisters, there is no innately beautiful Christian thing in loving those who love you and who are nice to you. Please do it. It's good. The world's a better place. But just know you're not doing anything Christian at that point. The truly Christian thing is to pray for those who persecute you, to love those who are your enemies, to show goodwill towards those who wrong you. That's Christian. That's Jesus versus suburbia. Suburbia says to you, take revenge, love your family, build high walls. This is a radically different teaching, isn't it? Invite the unlikely. The people who won't invite you back. Show love to those who there's no obligation to other than that you want to be children of your Father in heaven. In the Old Testament, it said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the New Testament, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does that look like in practice? On the one hand, we've got suburbia telling us, Here's the way to get through life, to make the most of your life. Yeah? And on the other hand, we have a vision of a future, a future world that will be perfected where Jesus will be king. And what he wants us to do is to live with his kingship now. Live with his kingship now in a world that doesn't acknowledge him as king. What will that mean? Well, it'll have to do a number of these things if you want to stand at odds to the world. You will need to go and be reconciled before you come to church. You will need to cut off what is causing you to stumble. You will need to say yes and no and mean it. You will need to be the person who is a person of peace rather than a person of revenge. You will need to eat with the unlikely. That sounds extraordinary, doesn't it? That sounds world-changing. That sounds fundamentally unlike the world around us. Those Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Those Christians, they're no different from the world around them. Not these Christians, hey? You live like this, you will be different. How can we live like this? How could we possibly live like this? By following the one who lived it out. The one who turned the other cheek. The one who lived a sinless life. The one who restored those who hated him, who showed love, who prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. Who died that they might be cleansed. Who rose that he might be victorious. How is any of this possible? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is is perfect. How is that possible? It's possible in Jesus, our King. Let's ask and pray that he might work that life in us, that we might see Jesus and suburbia transformed. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this challenge we've heard today. Uh, Father, you've poked at us today. You've convicted us. Father, some of us will be sitting here, including myself, with things that are uncomfortable. Don't let us sit there and ignore it. Change us. Help us to cut off Help us to reconcile. 
Father, transform us that we might be truly your children. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.